Welcome to the Banner Brothers Podcast. Today's lesson is entitled Lost in Translation and was given by Gordon Pennington on June 29, 2011 at Midsummer Night's Thing. For more information about men's ministry at Houston's First Baptist Church, you can find us on the web at houstonsfirst.org forward slash men. I'm really glad to be here and to be called an honorary Texan is another, um, well, that's a, probably a little inflated if you look at the shoes I've got on. They're really comfortable, but they're not boots. And I do have some authentic uh, Texas boots that I got from a trip years ago down here. And what I wanted to talk about tonight uh, was something that I think probably affects all of us in ways we're not always conscious of, but really matters when it comes to how we come across and how we're perceived. And it's all about our words and our walk. And that's what it comes down to in this world, in a secular, increasingly secular world, in an increasingly postmodern world. What is a postmodern world? If we can't define the modern, what is the postmodern anyway? I want to try to explore some of that tonight. And I want to make it fun. I want to make it personal. I want to make it meaningful. I know this is spe- precious time to you. It's great to be together with men, any kind of men's group, men's retreats, uh, men's gatherings. I think a reflection of something that's natural and artificial at the same time. Natural because I think men want to be with men. Artificial because I think in our culture today we have a strained definition of what it means. What, it, what is manhood? What is the what's the definition of manhood? Is it sexual identity alone? Is it a role? Is it is it some kind of gender model alone? What, what does it mean to be a man? And what is it that makes us feel good about being with other men? What is it that strengthens, strengthens us as men and makes us less insecure about what it is our roles and our calling and the responsibilities of manhood are really about? And I see that you've got a World War II vet coming who has an extraordinary story. I think to myself, there's a generation, the greatest generation, some have called it, that's gone bef- before. And I think about men, maybe they're your father's age, maybe they're your grandfather's age. Uh, maybe they're your age. But that's a generation that was brought together in a unique way because they had a common cause. And when I think about the, the natural part about coming together as men versus the artificial component of being called together as men is when my mother was growing up during the Second World War and she was in high school, she told me that there were so few men around they'd all been called into service somewhere that boys had responsibilities they just don't have today. After school, boys would go out and work on the railroads and work in the foundries and work in jobs. And I'm talking 13, 14, 15-year-old boys. Girls my mother's age, even at 13, 14, and 15, were called into service as well. They had a purpose. They were teaching school because the women, many mothers, were called into the factories. There was a common cause, and it was to fight what was a very clear enemy. There was no real debate at that time, I think, like there was in the Vietnam era, certainly like there has been since, about what is a just cause, what is a just war, what is just war theory, if you want to go back to a Christian model, an Augustinian model of what is a just cause in a, in a war, is it ever just? And I think in Texas, they're, they're pro- we probably don't have to debate that as long as we would in New York. But when you see something that's overtly and clearly an aggressive action against another person. I was in California. 
I don't know how many, meant, this is many years ago now because I was just out of college. But I was in California and I, actually, I saw a woman being beat. This, I don't know why this happened, but I've seen a few ugly incidents of public violence. In one case, I saw a woman being beaten by a man on a street uh, corner. And it was a domestic situation. They clearly knew each other. And he was, just, he was berating her. And she was kind of fighting back. But I stepped in. I said, sir, please. And I was, I was really restrained. But I just didn't, I couldn't fathom standing by and watching a woman being beaten. It happened to me within a week of moving to New York City. I didn't know my way around the city. I was on a subway platform, and I saw a man harassing a woman. She was deeply intimidated, and he was about to hit her, and he was a big guy. And I stood in the midst, and it was clear, and, and I didn't sense in this case that it was a domestic squ- conflict. I sensed that this was a stranger harassing a woman. As I looked around the subway platform, I'd been in New York less than a week, and I looked around, and people were backing off, like, this is not my conflict. This isn't something I got involved in. But as I looked at what was going on, I felt like I was called to I, I'd call. I don't know. There was just an instinct. It was just a reaction. I don't know if you've been in a situation like that. But when the cops came down later, this guy, was out, this guy it turned out later. I wasn't sure of it, but he was deranged. And the cops said, and this is what the New York police officer said to me on the platform. I've been in New York a week. He said, you don't want to get involved in situations like this. Warned me sternly. And I thought to myself, if I hadn't gotten what would you do? If it was someone you knew or someone you didn't know, it was a vulnerable woman in a threatening situation. What is manhood? What is manhood today? A police officer, law enforcement officer. Now, he may have been right. His judgment may have been better than mine. But I, to this day, cannot imagine not standing in the way. And I, 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 I've thought about this since then. And there are, there are threatening situations like that. And I didn't try to agitate the guy. I didn't try to take him on. But I just felt that it was an instant reaction. So I don't know about you, but for me, that's, those are one of the moments where I feel like a man, where I feel like I've got a just cause, and I know there's, it's unmistakable to me that there's a sense of obligation, sacrifice, duty, an opportunity to serve another human being. I, I don't know why. I've not been in the military. I've not served in law enforcement. I've never been in a situation like that, never been a professional fighter. I've never done anything quite like that. But when I've seen situations like that, and it happened a third time. The third time wasn't as pretty. Um, I got into a bar fight. <laughs> uh, and there was a woman being harassed by a guy, domestic situation, and I got my nose into that one too far. <laughs> but I felt like a man. <laughs> and I'm not justifying it. I think in, in some ways it was probably arrogance and a lot of other things. But it was a guy who was much taller than me. He was probably about 6'3". Uh, and I decked him. I took a shot at him right in the face, and I, I, I completely knocked this man off of his feet in one shot. And that was the wrong thing to do. It was arrogant. It was sinful. It was, it was evil. But I'll tell you something. I felt like a man. And after that, I turned around, and all his buddies were there, and my buddy was there, and we kind of walked out of the bar this way. Uh, I wasn't serving Jesus. I didn't have a right relationship with the Lord. I'm not proud of that moment. I'm just telling you that I felt something inside me that was like, and, and, and I, I did feel like I was protecting a woman's honor in a way, but there was probably a better way to do it. All I'm saying and suggesting, and this isn't where, where I think you draw a line in the sand and demonstrate your manhood or prove something, but I think there's a purpose in being a man that is required of us that goes back to agrarian societies, goes back to another time in history where we're not protected and insulated 
by our cars, by our technologies, by the comfort of our homes, and lots of other things that end up defining us from the outside in instead of the inside out. And I think if there were any ever, ever a time where we were going to define ourselves as men, we'd have to look for a biblical definition of manhood if you're going to follow Jesus Christ. Now, I would submit to you that there's nobody who's ever come down the pike or has ever been on earth that I know of who comes close to being more of a man than the God-man. And where do you start by defining Jesus? How do you define a man like that? Well, we have all kinds of definitions of Jesus. His his selflessness, he being God, thought itself, help me with this scripture here. I should have it memorized. I did once but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant, being obedient in that servanthood unto death, even death on a cross. Now, there's one definition of manhood. H.D. Uh, MacDonald, the Scottish theologian, in his, in his book, which is hard to find now, I think it's out of print, uh, about the hypostatic union, big theological term. I'm not a theologian. I should make a disclaimer right now. Check all my theological assertions with your pastoral uh, leadership. <laughs> But I will say this, and I think the pastoral staff would back me up with this theologically, there have only been three human beings on earth and two men. From the standpoint of the theological purity in that before the fall, you have Adam, and in Jesus, as Paul says, you have the second Adam. So only two unsullied, uncompromised, unbroken men, human beings, in, in that form of manhood have ever walked on the earth. So what are we? (laughs) You know, so what are we? We're in the process of being restored to manhood. We're being in the process of wrestling with manhood. We're in the process, I hope, of desiring manhood. And when do you feel the best? What I felt in those moments I described to you was a sense of purpose, my life for someone else's. I understood the risk, maybe not completely, but I stepped into a situation where I was willing to take, take the hit, or in one case, give the hit, which was wrong, but I'm just telling you how I felt. I'm not justifying it. You can feel such a sense of purpose. At the same time, you can feel a sense of shame. How many times do, you do, how many times do men do things that only a man could do that compromises what it is to have the honor of manhood, the courage of manhood, the reliability of manhood, the responsibility of being a man. Women are looking for real men today. And men, I think, are looking for real men today. Why is there such identity confusion, gender confusion, sense of sexual identity confusion? Because I think it is so unclear in a technological era as opposed to it may, what it may have been in an agrarian era, an era where we worked with our hands and had to do things differently than we do in an insular environment where so much of our lives is mediated by technologies around us. You may be competent, you may be smarter, faster, better at using those technologies than the next guy. You may be a knowledge worker versus someone who works with their hands. That doesn't make you better. It's a different skill set. But there's something refreshing. When I was in college, uh, I worked in construction. And I was absolutely exhausted every day. We got up early. We got out. We were putting up buildings. And, and I just remember how much I hated and loved that job at the same time. It was really hard work. But I can't remember a job where I came home satisfied that I'd looked back at what I'd accomplished in a single day, feeling that I'd expended all my energy. And I had a really tough construction boss. 
and we had to really produce according to a specific schedule, and, and uh, it was great work. But I was exhausted every day. But I really felt something inside that was ennobling. So why is it that we think about the sports you get involved in? Think about recreationally. What is it amongst all your recreational activity that makes you feel complete? Substitute another word behind, beyond manhood. Is it swinging a bat? Is it kicking something? Is it, is it swinging a golf club? What is the action involved that makes you feel complete? Or is it just a distraction? Is it just recreation? What is it that makes you feel complete as a person? Well, the reason I'm asking these questions as a kind of prelude to the, the idea of translating something is we have to understand our own feelings and ideas to be able to translate them to other people. In Christ, you have somebody who expresses manhood in such a complete way and did it with such astonishing restraint. Jesus had to express his entire calling, do it with all of his giftings, do it with all his ability, with all of his courage. And Jesus had courage. Think about this as a carpenter's kid who waited until he was 30 to have 36 months to carry out a mission that was brewing inside him, well, at least since he was 10 years old, right? We know that he taught in the temple. Can you imagine being in that audience, being taught by a 10-year-old boy who astonished them with his wisdom? Have you, have you even taken 10 minutes to think about that? What would it have been like to sit under the teaching of a 10-year-old Jesus from Nazareth, a no-account kid, from a no-account family, from a no-account town. What would that have been like? When you think about Jesus waiting, his patience, his discipline, his character, and his trust, I think the missing ingredient to manhood, and this is where I'm going to jump into the whole translation process, is that Jesus is the ultimate expression of media. Now, I've spent my, most of my career working in media, taking a set of ideas, and, and I actually, in my business, I come to clients, I say, I'm a translator. I want to translate your vision for your product and services in your company as a brand. I want to help you translate that in all the manifold ways that you have to connect with various constituents who are there to receive your message. They may be part of your existing audience of users. They may be people that you're trying to reach so that you can convert them to become customers. Whatever it is, I have to listen first so that I can translate faithfully, doing mostly visual materials, but also telling stories. So storytelling is a big part of our life translation work. Jesus' life translation work as a man was to convince the world that he was hearing the Father and obeying the Father and doing what the Father told him. Jesus didn't do his own thing. So there's a starting point right there. Think about today. How many of the things you did were basically prescribed by someone else at another time or something you prescribed at another time? And how much time did you spend today listening to what nuances of guidance or direction your Heavenly Father wanted to convey to you today? Because, guys, you can get it all right, pro forma, with discipline, with rigor, with commitment. You can live your entire life with tremendous success, at least as far as it appears to the people around you, and still not be conducting yourself in the way that speaks to the deepest relationship 
the deepest purpose and meaning in life. And that's a relationship with God our Father. Look, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a preacher. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to talk to you out of experience and conviction. And you can judge the limitations of that on your own. But I'm a changed man. Uh, to, to understand that part of my story, you'd have to understand a little bit about my background. Uh, I grew up the only child of an only child of an only child, and I have an only child. That's easy. <laughs> so my parents uh, both went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. They divorced before I was two. My grandfather was an engineer and was the head of a big automobile uh, industry in Detroit, and he invented something that uh, he wanted the original intellectual property rights to, and so he fought for it and went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and he lost in a 5-4 decision. Justice Learned Hand, one of the great Supreme Court justices of the 20th century, wrote the minority opinion in his favor, but he still lost, and he had multiple sclerosis. And it didn't matter by then because he died at 62. My dad and his brother inherited money, and my dad left my mother, moved to Italy and Switzerland, bought the Maserati Formula One team, and raced cars and chased women for the rest, you know, for many years. And I never met him again. He left when I was two. He visited me once when I was four, and I never saw him again until I was a freshman in college. My mother was afraid that being close to her and growing up in a household with one each of four generations of my family, me, my mother, my grandmother, and my great-grandfather, and a Norwegian maid named Hansi, <laughs> who had a, we had big old Hoover vacuums in it. I don't know how much it weighed, but she'd pick it up when I was about two, three years old. And she'd say, it has the power to suck you in. And honestly, to this day, when someone turns a vacuum on behind me, I don't know how high I jump. But I really believed it. It kept me in line for quite a while. <laughs> but that was the household I grew up in. And that was, uh, that was the nuclear family I knew. My dad would call me once a year on my birthday and interrogate me. Son, I love you. I miss you. I'm sorry I'm not there for you. How's your baseball team doing? My dad would just basically interrogate me and question my epistemology. Why? Well, like, what? My dad wanted to know what I had learned, why I had learned it, why it was important, what its application set was. And I just remember being afraid of these phone calls. How many of you know that much of what we view, view God as is formed in childhood? And, my view, and this is perfectly consistent with the Episcopal Church upbringing I had where I felt that there's beautiful aesthetics, a great liturgy, and I, I respected that, and it was all this sort of Elizabethan English and kind of hard to understand. I just thought, that's God talk. You know, it's beautiful, and it's got some you know, extraordinary poetic meaning, but I don't understand how it applies to my life right now. We didn't know you had to be born again. So we would joke when Episcopalians started getting saved, we'd say, well, the dead in Christ shall rise first. So I know you guys are polite to laugh. I know you've heard that. <laughs> but it was an amazing thing to come into the faith in that tradition. So what I knew about God was, was pretty limited to the stained glass window and the mysteries of God. It all seemed like a mystery. You weren't supposed to know this stuff. It was a mystery. So finally, when I came to faith in college, and I realized my dad, a lot of what I thought about God was related to the questions my dad would give me. Every year, same phone, same time, my birthday, the phone call. And I didn't know how to relate. I didn't love or hate my dad. I just kind of feared and questioned. It was, it was like perfectly consistent with my, my paternity 
was perfectly consistent with my theology of God. This strange disembodied voice questioning my existence and then disappearing for the rest of the year. That was consistent with a religious upbringing I knew. Now, had I known you could know Christ, I think I would have hungered and thirsted for that. But it wasn't until I was in college and I was walking across the campus of the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and some guy came up to me and said, have you heard the good news? And by that time, I was a pretty wild thing with a ponytail, and it was Ann Arbor, and I thought he's going to turn me onto a hash bash. Yeah. What's the good news? And he said, Jesus Christ is coming again. And I looked at that guy like he was crazy, or he'd already been to the hash bash. I'd never heard anything like that in my life. Jesus Christ is coming. I mean, where do you get off just saying stuff like that on a street corner, man? And I sat down with that guy. He had my full attention, and he translated something extraordinary to me, something mysterious and ethereal and ineffably outside of my range of experience at that point. And he basically took the four spiritual laws and led me to Jesus Christ right on the corner. And he said, do you believe there's a God? I said, I've always believed there's a God. Well, what separates us from God and his love? And, you know, he, he, I think he had the navigator's version of it. I think it was the bridge to life. You know that one? Thank God for these, these tools. It's not the only way to share the faith. It's not necessarily the best way to share the faith. But it is a consistent metaphor. It's something you can use to relate to people on some level if you do it with genuineness, if you're really interested in the person. It's not just a formula. I'll tell you, in my case, I'd never heard it before. I didn't have any dismissive stereotypes about people. It turned out it's from Campus Crusade for Christ. I didn't think that this was cliche. I thought this was completely fresh, original, compelling, and meaningful for me. And God had taken me at that point, and he had my total and rapt attention on that street corner in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And the guy at the end of sharing the four spiritual laws with me were separated from God because of willful rebellion. You can call it sin. It manifests itself in many ugly ways. But the bridge to life is in that Christ stretched his arms out on the cross and made it possible for us to walk home. Well, to me, that looked like the most extraordinary act of manhood I'd ever heard about. Why would he do that for me? I just remember thinking. I'd known all about the cross. I'd, I'd been in church for years, all my life. It just never occurred to me that he'd actually done it for me. And it changed my life. Some moment of reckoning there. He said, would you like to come home? Um, and in my, I didn't say this to the guy, but I thought, I am so ready to come home. I'm so tired of feeling alone, alienated, cut off from something. I'm not even sure what home looks like. And I had a good home. I had a nice home. I had a comfortable home. I had a privileged home. But I still felt something in my heart told me I wasn't home. So I came running home. And after that, in that moment, I knew something was going to change. I went off to college. My behavior hadn't changed. I hadn't gotten any discipleship. I hadn't studied the word. And I just fell into the party scene at my college. And because this was at the beginning, this was before my freshman year. And I went through a lot of misery, self-inflicted misery. And then someone followed up again and, let, and called me to a Bible study, invited me to a Bible study. I said, I don't really know the Bible. And I just felt it's so awkward, but they kept calling and calling, and they really had a great heart about them. And so I went to a Bible study, and I just, and here I am, I've accepted Christ, received him on a street corner, and I'm arguing with it every time I go to the Bible study, I'm arguing with them. And you know, the, the, the strength of the leadership of that college campus Bible study was that they invited questions. 
They thought it was great. They encouraged it. said, how great that you care enough to ask questions. Are we, at, by the way, application point along the way. Are we asking people, inviting people to ask questions and to really deal with the stuff that they feel is inconsistent in the church, its institutional manifestations, manifestations of faith in our lives, manifestations of how Christianity looks around the world? Are we inviting them to wrestle with that the way we need to wrestle with it? Because one of the first things I tell people when I share the faith is I take it from a third-party point of view. And if I'm sitting on an airplane with somebody, I have found that instead of opening my Bible and saying, now it's us and them, I've drawn a line in the sand, more often I look at my Bible now on, on technology, on my computer, on, a, on an iPhone or, or a smartphone, which is kind of cool because I'm still getting the Word of God, but I don't have to like be a Bible thumper. Now, there's nothing wrong with carrying a Bible. There's nothing wrong. I, I remember going to a Texas church here years ago, and there was a there was a marshal at the door. I guess I don't know if you have marshals at the door here for their uniform. There's a uniform marshal at the door of a church here in Texas, and it said, you know, please declare. I think it said something like, please declare your your concealed. I don't know what it said. And I and I did, I walked up to the guys that were going to church. I says, I want to declare that I have a concealed weapon. They said, thank you very much. Sir. And he didn't even ask what it was. <laughs> And I thought, aren't you going to ask what it is? He says, well, sir. And I pulled it out. It was a Bible. I said, I'm carrying a sword. <laughs> I just wanted you to know. <laughs> I got excited about that. <laughs> see, I see the Bible is not a little, you know, you know, Swiss Army knife. I, I see it as a claymore. I see it. You know what a claymore is? And that takes two hands. That's not a dueling sword. That's a sword where you lop off heads of riders on horses you get one shot and it had better be a kill shot i mean that's the power of the word we're dealing with stuff that has the power of life and death i like that i like that the bible has power that god's word has power i like that i think it makes me feel more like a man i think it makes me feel really alive and i dig that And I want to feel completely alive. And God's word completely makes me alive because it also shows me where I'm in death and sin. And it it cuts things away, right? Sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of, of very, very fine lines where a surgeon would cut. Is the word still cutting you guys? Are you past that? Are you a point of maturity where you haven't wept on your knees lately, where you haven't been convicted of something that is so nuanced? that you've just gotten used to it, a conceit, something rooted in pride, something that's the root of other sins, which left untended to is going to fetter and rot and affect you in ways that you won't even see for a long time because you've got a systemic problem and you've ignored it for a long time. Some of the sins in our lives, guys, are easy. Whether we deal with them or not is another thing, but some of them are subtle. And I I would venture to say that the subtle ones are the ones that get you later, left untended. So I'm in college, I'm going to a Bible study, and I'm realizing that the problem I have with the Bible is a translation problem. We're back to the word of translation. So I'm hearing the Bible in Elizabethan English in Cranmer's liturgy in the Episcopal Church context, and I just don't understand it. Now I'm realizing the Bible speaks to us in a daily, practical way. It's meant to instruct and enliven and inspire us. And I'm excited about that. 
And then I find out that it's better to marry than to burn. So I'd better get married because I'm burning. And, uh, and I'm thinking that this is a great part of college, but it wasn't. And I repented of my sins and, and, I, and I entered a time of prayer and fasting and almost asceticism. My friends were worried about me because I was so into fasting. I said, I need God more than I need this food at the cafeteria. And, and, so I, and, and then I would, le- and I would get people on fasting. Uh, you know, let's fast together. And people thought it was crazy. But for me, it was a very, very specific discipline to remind me that I need God. Now, I don't know about your, your, your traditions or experience, uh, but I would encourage you to do some fasting. It might even be a technology fast. Have you guys seen people go on a technology fast? Just shut it all down. Like, you know, we'll get back to that. But there's all kinds of ways you can put something aside for something better. This is one of the, you know, Anglo-Catholic traditions, of course, at Lent, to give something up. I don't necessarily think it makes a better person, better Christian, because you do it at Lent. But I think we're called to the power of fasting. So that was something that changed my life. Long story short, and how I ended up in Wall Street and Madison Avenue in the fashion industry. I was married in my 20s. I was divorced in my 20s because I had the ambition to go to law school. I had the ambition to start a couple of businesses. I had ambition to do everything except take care of my wife's emotional needs because she too had been estranged from her father. He was at home. They, her parents were never divorced, but her father was a big automotive industry executive and he was gone most of the time. And when he was there, he was not emotionally accessible to her. So here we are in our early 20s, got married at 22, and here we are not realizing how much brokenness is still in our lives that we hadn't taken care of. So like a lot of young couples, we thought we'd had all the counseling we did, but I was emotionally absent, and when I wasn't there, she immediately, this happened, guys, almost from the first week of our marriage. A great tragedy, a thread that started getting pulled out from the first week. I see it so clearly now, I didn't then. And I thought, I'm, I'm the authority in the home. I abused that authority, not physically abusing, but I, I took for granted the fact that I was the leader. And instead of being a servant leader, uh, and my wife would test me in, in really remarkably sophisticated ways. She would ask me, for example, what would you like to do this weekend? Careful with that one, guys. And I would be honest with her. I'd say I'd like to play golf and I'd like to play, t- you know, I'd like to do a whole bunch of things outside the home, on my own, that didn't include her until, I, and then later in the day, you know, I'd like to take you to dinner. What she wanted me to say was, you know the things I've been talking to you about all week. She was not a woman who would badger me. She was much more artful than that. But there were things that for her spoke her love language. Take care of the yard, pay the bills so she didn't have to take care of the plumbing that was needed some fixing, any number of honeydews, a litany of tasks that said to her that were not very romantic, but in the end said, you place my sense of security and comfort above your own recreational pursuits. And I worked hard. I had a great work ethic, but on the weekend, I like to relax and play. So I put that need in front of her needs. And I think had I changed that, maybe you guys are going through the same thing. I can't imagine anybody getting it worse than I got it in terms of making that mistake. But that was something that was a failure translation for me to hear what she was saying in her love language to me, and I wasn't interpreting it. And she was giving me all these chances. Years went by, seven years into the marriage, 
Baby comes along. We thought this would cement us together. I'm starting to slow down, be more attentive, be more at home. And I wanted her to have everything. I wanted her to have everything materially. But what she wanted first and foremost was my vulnerability and presence emotionally. Have you guys figured this out? Man, I'm only seeing a few heads nodding. And that's scary. Because, guys, if we don't figure this out, we'll never get to the next steps of manhood. We'll never translate what it means to really love and serve and be fulfilled in marriage. And how many people, how many Christians are living in unfulfilling marriages but doing the right thing, sticking in there, hanging in there, hoping and praying and enduring because it's the right thing and we've got to get it better. And, boy, I'll tell you, nobody's more expert in putting on a show than Christians. And not for wrong reasons. Not for wrong reasons. We want to do the right thing. We're trying to do the right thing. How many times did you go into anger management and anger abatement on your way to church? I mean, that's just the devil's playground. <laughs> and then you've got to put on this, you know, everything's cool. Look, we can laugh at ourselves. I, I, who hasn't been there? Who hasn't been in conflict management right before the most sacred and spiritual experiences in our life? Who, come on. Hello? Am I, am I in the right place i mean remember with a bunch of guys who know what i'm talking about because if if we get this right if we start understanding the cues we're getting from those nearest to us and dearest to us and those cues are first listening to god if you're not listening to god you're not going to hear a whole bunch of other cues if you're not listening to your wife you're not going to hear god because like it or not god's going to do a lot of speaking to you through your wives and your children and your siblings and your colleagues, and your parents, and people you don't like at work. God's speaking to us all the time, guys. So the hard part, first of all, acknowledge yourself that you're not there. I think the greatest and perhaps the most grotesque masquerade that goes on in the name of spiritual maturity is thinking, I've been a Christian for 20 years. I've kind of got all that stuff down. I'm way beyond that, and I'm a teacher and I'm, I'm, in, I'm imparting things to other people. I'm discipling people. Look, and you may be, but that doesn't mean you can't get to the pinnacle of power and influence and experience like a man after God's own heart, like King David, like the warrior poet king, and throw it all away in one hot, sultry afternoon because you got a gaze on somebody that you really didn't need to focus on and follow up on. It wasn't the gaze it wasn't just the focus. It was following up on his lustful desire and everything fell apart from there. And this was the man after God's own heart. You want to see a guy who knew war and romance and poetry and beauty and friendship and brotherhood and everything that goes into being an amazing man. There he is, King David. And it all fell apart. And it was, and great was the fall thereof. What a horrible scene in this guy's life. It's a life lesson for us, guys. Who, who hasn't admired this man? Who hasn't had a passion? I don't think you've got a passionate bone in your body if you haven't at some point in Scripture said, oh my God, who writes like this and fights like this? This guy's so well-rounded and such a beautiful human being. And it all falls apart. It's a life lesson to us, guys. Nobody's immune. The first part of real maturity is be on guard. 
Don't take these things for granted. Don't take your good fortune for granted, your good name for granted, your good household for granted, your good circumstance for granted, your good friends for granted. If there's ever a time where we need more time with Jesus on our knees to say, I'm afraid. It's when everything seems like it's going well, but we don't have, we've lost something about that pure, passionate desire of our first love for Jesus. And if we get that right, if we begin to listen, we'll be better translators in every other area of our lives. In a world gone mad, gone crazy, gone secular, what is postmodernism? We don't understand modernism, pre-modernism. The pre-modern world is a world that's based on revelation. God said it. We see that the litmus test is, 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 a, is a perfect standard of prophetic accuracy. You're wrong, you die. So the Hebrews introduced this to the Hellenistic world, and Paul's the great trans... Isn't God creative to find a guy out of the... Like Paul, to bring the gospel to the Romans, to the Hellenistic world? I read Romans, and I tell friends in New York where I live, this is Paul's letter to the New Yorkers. Arrogant, self-satisfied, hubristic, think they know it all, sophisticated, been there, done that. And Paul brings to them this revelation in Romans. How beautiful is the Romans road to salvation? Because it says, you got nothing to offer God. To people that think they're the fair-haired children with the best educations and experience and background. They've been there, been all over the world. Saul Steinberg's famous cartoon on the cover of The New Yorker in 1933 is an image of Manhattan, cartoonish, and west of the Hudson River, You've seen it in posters. Our little bumps and ripples, all the Rocky Mountains and whatever's west of the Hudson River. Doesn't matter. Manhattan is it. New Yorkers are so self-centered and, and geocentric in that way. So was Rome. All roads lead to Rome. And where did Paul want to end his life and give up his life freely and do whatever he had to? First, he wanted to reach all the church. Think of the missionary mindset of Paul, a guy who had Christians killed and is transformed so that he could be the great translator of this strange and peculiar gospel, this good news. What did the Romans need good news for? Why is Romans so essential to our understanding of sharing the gospel? Do you guys know the Romans road? You're Baptists, man. <laughs> That's a cool thing. To be a, ba- to be a Baptist to me is a cool thing. If you're really a Baptist and understand your history, it's a pretty cool thing. You should be, you should proud of it. I think you need a little more pneumatology, but that's just me. Uh, But for me, it's like what I've always loved about a lot of navigators I knew came from a Baptist heritage and they knew the word of God and they could open the Bible. And these were guys who had, they they could show you the tear stains in their Bible. Oh, that's what's happened to the ink on that page, man. That's where I was weeping before the Lord. I mean, that's the relationship you want to have with the word of God. I don't think we get that from technology. You're not going to see any tear stains on my iPhone. But what a beautiful thing to be with men of God. Have you ever been with guys? Seriously, there's guys whose Bibles are so old and beaten, they're sacred to them because the word is sacred to them. Look, it can become an icon. Look how beat up my Bible is. You know, but you could have worse icons in your life than a beat up old Bible that's precious to you because it's walked you through life. What a beautiful thing what a godly thing what a manly thing to have a bible that's precious i had the privilege of being in your pastor's study today and man he's got a stack of bibles that look like there's a like there's a bucket of tears been cried over him i don't know where they came from pastor but wow i was really moved by that i was really 
I was touched. I was convicted by that. How many men, how many hours go into, guys, we're, we're the inheritors of legacies of sacrifice and prayer and intercession. Do you know why there's so many believers in a place like Houston and why there's the forces of darkness are contending with you? Because there's a legacy of prayer. There's a legacy. Brave, heroic men have defined the state of Texas. And Texas really is different. I can tell you as a New Yorker who's lived in L.A. and been to a lot. I've been to a lot of places. Texas is different. It's fresh. It's original. That doesn't mean everything you do in Texas is right. But Texas is, Texas is you value some things here. Authenticity, freedom, the rights of individuals, not just to do what they please, but to serve others, to fight for the needs of others, to defend honor and bigger ideas than yourselves. I love Texas. I, it's a great honor when Eric says I'm an you know, official Texan. I don't think I'm quite at that stature yet. But So when you think about translation, you think about the world that Paul inherited and was a great translator for. Study the life of Paul and you'll see one of the great translators of all time because he had to take something that was despised, insignificant, and he basically was the man who helped change the world and took it all the way to Rome. What an extraordinary collection. What an amazing collection. We take the Bible for granted. What amazing collection of literature it is. And the letters of Paul especially, and the life of Paul especially. So that's the pre-modern world, a world of revelation. The wor- then, then you get to the world that becomes modern through reason. And the French Enlightenment, the idea that reason trumps revelation because man has a reasoning faculty. But that doesn't mean we have to use it to do something on our own in rebellion toward God. Was it not Isaac Newton who created the standard of, even today, Newtonian physics sets a standard for empirical inquiry that hasn't been beat. And this is a guy that loved God, studied the Bible, wrote commentaries. Isaac Newton had time in his scientific inquiry to study God's word. And to say things like, we have a sense of curiosity that pleases God to think his thoughts after him. What a beautiful way to explain science. Uh, I, was, I was educated as a Darwinist. And it's only been a few years ago, even as a Christian. And I, and I lament the fact that Darwinism is being taught at Wheaton and taught at major Christian universities today. It sickens me. Because I've had personally a wake-up call from my mother who was also educated as a Darwinist, did her master's degree, as well as undergraduate work at the University of Michigan, to be a, a teacher, and in, in part, to fully embrace Darwinism. And it was a few years ago, she saw the, the literature of renowned scientists, some of them Nobel laureates, who questioned the prevailing ethos and mindset of the scientific community. And we've been told that we want to be so relevant that we're basically following errors in order to find acceptance, uh, and this is what's happening in our Christian universities and colleges. We're hiring people from the best universities who have already been tainted in their thinking. You want people who have academic excellence, but if it comes with the religious treatment of Darwinism, and that's what Darwinism has become, uh, you know, I, I'll submit this to your pastoral leadership. You may think this is going too far. I don't know what you think about it, but I, for my money, I'll tell you, I've even become a young earth creationist. And I went 191 river miles down the Colorado River last year with some guys from Answers in Genesis and some other guys, including Dr. Olasky and some other eminent theologians, cosmologists, geologists, the, uh, some fascinating guys. 
who had far more grasp of these ideas than I did because I wanted to hear what they had to say. And I found the evidence compelling. And the Grand Canyon is a great geologic laboratory for looking at how things took place and, and, in, and in what chronology and by what force. So the, the, the jury is still out, I can tell you. Darwinism is the longest unproved major th scientific theory in history, to my knowledge. So think about this stuff. If I'm stretching you or challenging you, you don't agree with me, that's fine. I'm here to, to challenge your thinking about translating these things into the everyday world. So what happens next? After reason trumps revelation, modernism comes along and says data trumps reason. Let's see what the data says and try to incorporate it with reason, but we don't have a construct to match the data entirely. So postmodern comes along and says, Revelation is outmoded. Reason can't keep up and provide a construct for the modern delivery of data. And postmodernism comes along and says, it doesn't matter. And that's the world we're living in, essentially an existentialist world that says, what matters is your subjective experience. Do you believe it? Does it matter to you? And if it matters to you and you have conviction about it, the, the bottom line in the modern world is the existentialist will say that he who has the best story wins. So story becomes the most important platform for reason and meaning and understanding in the context of how we look at the world around us. Story, story, story. You began tonight because you guys are guinea pigs for Hollywood. You're Christians. But to entertain yourselves and be guys and have some laughs together, what do you do? You turn to Hollywood. Let's put up some, some hot clips from movies. And by the way, you guys are familiar with those movies. And some of those movies have some pretty raw and raunchy moments in them. It's okay. We're postmodernists. We can get it. We can differentiate. We've got discernment. We're not going to necessarily ingest all that or let our kids watch it. But I can promise you this as somebody who's worked in corporate America and the marketing side and seen the data and the research, we're getting you guys. Mind share leads to market share. All we want to do it's the frog in the water. Little by little, we want to get you used to certain ideas and reinforce, reinforce, and then shape your behavior. And you guys are doing a great job complying. Thank you very much. <laughs> so what is it going to mean to resist and be original and be authentic? You know, we're going to have to figure this stuff out, guys, because I'm, a, listen, I'm subject to the same stuff. You think marketing guys aren't subject to marketing? We're the worst. I love trend watching and going in the shopping the stores and finding the new stuff. I'm an alpha consumer, an early adopter. I'm all that. And I have to watch it too because even attitudes creep in. I used to curse like a truck driver. I haven't finished my story. After I, seven years in the marriage, I got divorced, fell away from the faith. Two years, I was in basically clinical depression. I didn't even know what I wanted to do with my life except kill myself. And by the time I was 29, I moved to New York and my dad and I had reconciled years later, thank God, a miracle. And my uncle took me in and basically introduced me to the business world in New York, took me to some very high-level meetings with people. He'd gone to Columbia Business School, and his friends from Harvard Business School got together and formed a colloquy of consultants back in the 60s, published a magazine called Planning Review. I don't know if you guys know it. Or later it became Strategy and Leadership and was sold to the Emerald Press, an academic publisher in England. He wrote two books for the American Management Association, and he exposed me to something that instilled a competitive desire in me, a drive to want to achieve. I thought, if, at least if I've blown my relationship with my wife 
and I failed God. And I really felt like I was a guy who failed God and had no place to go. I was ashamed of what had happened in my life. I hadn't cheated on my wife. I had emotionally abandoned her, and she, and she finally abandoned me. And if I tracked back, I thought, this is outrageous. This is wrong. My church sided with me. The elders sided with me. Uh, I had all the reasons externally to say that I'm right and she's wrong. But I knew in my heart of hearts I had emotionally drifted away from my wife when she needed me to be the person who had proved to her that not all men were like her father and my father. You get that? Can you track with me on that? Because, guys, our wives, our loved ones, the women around us have a history, and so do you. And you may not be fully conscious of it. But the fact is, we're, we're, if we're going to be restored, renewed, recreated in Christ, we have to deal with a whole bunch of stuff that is really painful. And sometimes you come to faith and you get a lot of the easy stuff worked out first. And later on, you realize there's some stuff that I've neglected that's really at the core of my being. And you get in the right circumstances. Somebody touches that sweet spot or that tender spot or where you're sensitive and vulnerable. What happens? You react, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, where those reaction points are. They may be well-hidden. They may be disciplined and couched in something else, but there's a certain point and a certain circumstance where someone says something or does something to you, and you react. My dad, who's really just coming around to Jesus after a long, long journey, I'd love to take time to tell you about some other time, my dad said it within 30 seconds he can tell me if somebody's really been transformed by Jesus Christ. And I said, what's the litmus test there? He says, all you have to do is insult a man and watch his reaction. And I think to myself how brittle we are. There are times where I can take it. It's like, ah, no big deal. You know, I'm, if I'm dead to self, then who is left to insult? But think about it, guys. Now, I'm not saying there isn't some place for dignity and they, I, I'm not talking about that, but I'm saying there's something in us that bristles and is brittle. Remember, think about a man who is truly dead to himself. Did Jesus react when insulted? There's your test comparison. So if these are all things that we need to understand so that we can be better translators of what? Of the gospel, the good news. What's the greatest thing the world needs to hear? It's the gospel. And I said this at a lunch Bible study today that David was kind enough to invite me to. And Eric, uh, I don't know what got in me. It was not, I was going to talk about international, something else and, and use some scripture. But I just felt this conviction. And I realized that, that today that people desperately, desperately need to be, we need to be awakened to the power of the gospel in us. And I read from Ephesians 2. Um, I'd love to read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 with you guys. If somebody has a Bible, I could borrow. I've got an electronic one, but I'd rather read it with some tear-stained Bible. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Jack. Ephesians 2. Man, this is good stuff. Ephesians 2. In verse 1, then you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to this worldly age, according to the ruler of the atmospheric domain, the spirit now work. I like this translation. What is this? What is this? 
You know what translation you're reading, Jack? <laughs> Jack, all these years you've been reading the Christian Standard Bible in the Holman Pocket Size Edition. I don't know. This is great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, walked according to this worldly age, according to the ruler of the atmospheric domain, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived amongst them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. Notice the difference here, carrying it out. Guys, you're going to have impulses and ideas. If you've got any blood in you, you're going to have impulses and ideas. You know what I'm talking about? It, the difference is not acting on them. It's, it's the second look. Carrying out the inclination of our flesh and thoughts by nature, we were children under wrath, as others were also. But God, who is abundant in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in our trespasses. By grace we have been saved. And he also raised us up with him who is seated in the heavens, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is a gift from God, not from works, lest any man should boast. That's a famous verse. And this is the one I want to end here on. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so we should walk in them. That might be the word that is most abused in translation of, and I talked about it today, it's the Greek word creation, or we are his workmanship, many translations say. In Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship. Do you know what the word is in the Koine Greek? Poema. Poema. We are his poetry. Now, when you start getting your head around this stuff, and you start thinking about the fact that life is a poem, and poems need translation too. If you like Shakespeare, you've got to understand the Elizabethan world he wrote in. I, I just saw a great play. I just saw uh, uh, As You Like It. Or no, I saw All's, All's Well That Ends Well in New York like two weeks ago. And you have to stay on every line with Shakespeare. Don't you go see a play or even watch a Shakespearean movie? But what it delivers, if you pay attention to it and you prepare and invest in knowing Shakespeare, the rewards are amazing because he understood the human condition like maybe nobody has ever written. And when I think about that, and when I think about the translation process in our lives, guys, we are living poems. What kind of poetry are you writing in your life? Are you doing something fresh? Are you living something original? Are you expressing something beautiful? No matter where you are in life at this point, no matter what your job or your circumstance, your marital status Guys, if we wake up to this and we start becoming poets, we'll be more like King David at his height, not his depths. At the best, not the worst. And my great desire is to start living more artfully, more creatively, to see things that where I'm in a rut and the difference between a rut and a grave is just how much time you're pacing it. You think about that. I want to live differently, and I want to hear the voice of God. I want to hear the Spirit. David communed with God. If there's one thing as modern guys that we all need in a postmodern world, it's to tell our stories better. Uh, I started to say when I'm on an airplane, for example, I often, instead of opening my Bible, put a line in the sand, I'll say, what do you think about those Christians? 
They really annoy me. I'll do that all the time. I have no problem with that. And then I'll say, but I think they're right. And, I've, and I struggle with the stuff they bring up. I got a Christian friend. Now, this doesn't mean you're not a Christian. You're talking about them categorically. Yeah, I struggle with them. But you know, in the end, by the time the convert, before the plane lands, I've usually been able to tell the guy without threatening him. It's usually him. Sometimes it's a, it's a woman. But, you know, the conversations you have on planes when you're stuck with somebody in a long-haul flight are pretty interesting. How many situations are you in? How about at work where people have drawn a line in the sand and they just want to label you, stereotype you, dismiss you, and harangue you? Is there any other environment where it's harder to be a Christian today because of the stereotyping? Oh, yeah, Gordon's a Christian there. Eric's a Christian. What do you think of what the Christians did this time? And I'm the first to admit, what I try to do is say, if there were ever a greater gap between the institutional behavior of a class of people and the heart of what they're really seeking to follow and the one who originated that journey, that is the gap I would want to explain to you because I struggle with it every day of my life. I don't want to be a manifestation of a failed institution as much as I want to be a follower of the one who originated it. And if you're willing to break away from stereotypes, and if you're willing to listen, this might be the thing that is more precious and valuable than anything I could ever convey to you. And please forgive me. We even came up with an idea to go to our atheist friends in New York, get a group of guys together and say, please forgive us, we failed to live or demonstrate or explain the thing that we have found most important. If you think there's any shred of, of, of warmth or intelligence or compassion or reasonableness about us. Would you do us the favor, the great good favor of telling us how to better live and translate the gospel that has been so meaningful for us? We know we've let you down. We know we fail many times. Guys, it's a terrible burden to have to think that someone's salvation is going to be based on the excellence of your good reputation and behavior. And we may take that seriously, and we must and we should, but guys, that's not going to lead people to Jesus. My whole testimony, I'm sorry I didn't get to tell you the whole thing because it involved alcoholism, cocaine abuse, crack cocaine, even while I was flying. I said people with drug problems go to get their drugs in Harlem. If you're flying to Europe in somebody's, in somebody's Gulfstream, uh, then you, know, you don't have a drug problem. It's recreational use of drugs. I had so many excuses, and my heart was empty. My life was a mess. I was in what I called the elegant death spiral. And I finally, instead of crashing and burn, I had a revelation of God in my apartment 12 years ago where the Lord really, like the words choose life, appeared to me like a ghosted image on my electrochemical image on my retina. Seriously, stare at a light long enough, close your eyes. Even when you open your eyes again, you see that impression. That was where I saw the words choose life. I fell to my knees. I asked God to forgive me. I asked Christ to heal me. I walked away from alcoholism. I walked away from a heavy-duty lust problem. I walked away from crack cocaine. I walked away from it all with no Betty Ford, no rehab, no AA, and I've been clean ever since. There's so much more to share, and you guys have been generous with your time tonight. I know this is a midsummer get-together, and it's a special time. I just feel like this is chapter one. I said that today. There's so much here, and there's so much that begs translation in our lives. We've got to get it right. We've got guys and, and men and women around us every day that don't know Christ and will die in their sins. 
And if we don't care about that or we're afraid of what they'll say, we've got to be inventive and find new ways to be living poems. How many of you guys want to take that risk with me and make your life a work of poetry instead of something predictable and stereotypical? If you feel that way, stand up with me now. Let's close in prayer. I don't know how you're typically in these. Are we going to pray? or I'd, I'd like to. Guys, let's just bow our hearts before the Lord. Father God, we thank you for being so gracious to us, giving us lives that are full of promise and potential because we're inheritors of the promises. And all the promises of God in Jesus are yes, and in him, amen, unto your glory by us. We thank you that by the power at work within us, you're able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And we want to give you glory in our lives and through the church forever and ever. Lord, we're asking you to just transform and heal us. I just feel like a lot of nerves may have been touched tonight. I hope so. I hope that we're sensing and seeing things in our lives that we've neglected to give to you, that we've struggled with for a long time. Lord, I know men and I know the journey that we have as men to win trust and loyalty and love. God, I pray that men would keep their sacred oaths and they would keep their sacred secrets. And that we'd be able to share with one another the, the agony and pain that we deal with sometimes so that we could receive healing and not judgment. I pray that we could receive strength and not condemnation. I pray that we could come to you, Lord, with our hearts bent every day saying we want a fresh filling. We want a fresh visitation. We want a fresh sense of your presence. We want a fresh anointing. We want a fresh sense of calling and purpose to live out the gifts and opportunities you give us every day. And God, most of all, I pray that we could translate your goodness, your kindness, your love to a world around us that is desperately waiting to hear and to see and to know. God, I pray you would waken in us something so rich and so powerful and so beautiful that we would want to begin even tonight, not even waiting till tomorrow, to look at the way we live and to see it with a new sense of poetic beauty. We can't do that without your help. And we look to you now, Father, in the name of Jesus, by the power of your spirit, to walk it out all our days as a real and true band of brothers, declaring that Jesus is alive and he is Lord. Amen. Gordon Pennington's talk entitled Lost in Translation. If you are a man, we invite you to join us August 27th for Man to Man, an evening with Louis Zamperini. It starts at 7 p.m. in the Worship Center at Houston's First Baptist Church. Tickets are required and can be bought on the web at houstonsfirst.org forward slash man to man. That's M-A-N-T-O-M-A-N. We hope you can join us for an inspiring evening as Louis Zamperini, the subject of Laura Hillenbrand's book, Unbroken, will be here on August 27th to share his life story and lessons learned. Thank you and have a great day.